0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we look at the Gospels of the New Testament as a call to reimagine our relationships with each other and with empire. We talk with T. Wilson Dickinson about his recent book, The Green Good News, and he helps us understand the ways in which the ancient voice of Jesus speaks so well to our present-day anxieties. Stay tuned. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is T. Wilson Dickinson. He's a writer, teacher, and minister who lives in his hometown in central Kentucky. He's director of the Green Good News, an organization that is rooted in a number of food justice ministries and which educates, cultivates, and organizes Christian communities to follow the ways of justice, joy, and simplicity. He also teaches theology and is the director of the Doctor of Ministry and Continuing Education Programs at Lexington Theological Seminary. He holds a doctorate from Syracuse University, a Master's of Divinity from Vanderbilt Divinity School, and he's an ordained minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. He is the author of Exercises in New Creation from Paul to Kierkegaard, and today we're discussing his recent book, The Green Good News, Christ's Path to Sustainable and Joyful Life. Wilson Dickinson, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you, David. It's great to be here.
0: So one of the things that I noted throughout your book, The Green Good News, is that you are tackling head on the question of anxiety. And as you and I are taping this, we have just gone into an insurgence. We've, we've bombed a leader of Iran. Currently, Australia is burning. Um, there's a lot of things going on the day that we're taping this conversation. And I want to start with this question of anxiety. So you and I are both aware that the world is not as God intends it, and so when we're talking about this phrase anxiety, are we just talking about kind of general dread, or is there something deeper here that we're talking about?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Yeah, I think that there is that there are, there's an enormous kind of list that we could put together of of reasons why we're anxious that are even beyond like the kind of daily rhythm of our lives and you know, we're constantly bombarded by it. You know, you know, we can wake up each day and there's something new. It's kind of dizzying to even keep up with it. Um, and so I think that there, there's good reason that there is a sense of dread about what could happen today and what all this is going to add up to in the future. But I also think though that that there's there's a deep sense of anxiety and, and I really like how you put it because, you know, we have a feeling that also the, the world is not as God intended it to be. And, and that's not just in the kind of spectacular and virtually cataclysmic moments that, you know, that we are kind of that are unveiled for us through the media. But I think in our, in our daily lives, there's just so much that feels broken and missing and off and hurting. And, and there's also a sense that not just of injury, but maybe a lack of integrity in our lives, that things are not woven together in a beautiful way. And so I think that there is really a, a widespread sense of anxiety and pain, and there's also not a lot of outlets to even name those deep pains and anxieties that are close to us. And so I think a lot of times that anxiety hardens over into apathy and cynicism, even. And, and and sometimes I think we're not even aware of the sources of just this deep kind of pain and dissonance we feel
0: in here. Well, and I wanted to start with that note of anxiety because your book is dealing with the notion of good news. But you address this head-on, and at the, at the conclusion of your book, you start off with a sentence that when I read it, it just floored me. The good news often feels most distant at night. And then you go on to say that you spend... Some of your nights sleepless and feeling weighed down by the scope of the challenges we all face. And I think that's what I was wanting to get at with that first question is that, you know, I can't immediately stop the fires in Australia. I can't immediately stop the fact that we might be on the brink of war once again with a foreign nation. And so I think that I'm very much like you as you characterize yourself in these sentences that I stay up at night and I fret over these things. And so your book is, at the same time, an attempt to make a systemic response, but it's also a deeply personal response. And so I want to start with the second half of that. And I want to to get to know kind of you, Wilson Dickinson, the person, and have my listeners kind of understand where you're coming from. So if you would— tell me a little bit about where you grew up because you're still very connected to that space aren't you
1: yes and and no <laughs> so I, I grew up in a small town in central kentucky and i live in that small town in central kentucky and I actually live in the house that i grew up in and so i have very deep roots here but also in a strange turn of events i live in a place that i never really feel like i, I fit into either and I think some of that has to do with the kind of idiosyncrasies of, you know, me being odd. But I think a lot of that has to do is is I live in this beautiful region of the world. Central Kentucky is, you know, it's just, it's it's beautiful and it's green and there's rolling hills. And there is a really rich craft culture here. There is a really rich, even, culture of writing and a really rich religious culture here. So there's there's all these beautiful things. But I also grew up in, in a town that, since I was a kid, has tripled or quadrupled in its population. And I, I like the joke that there is a local ordinance that we aren't allowed to have green spaces, and if there is a green space it needs to be covered by either a strip mall or a subdivision. And so, in a lot of ways, I'm rooted in a place with deep relationships with people that I love. But this place is also over the last several decades, really over the entire course of my lifetime, has the, the logic of empire has made this a place that's forsaken the idea of place. And so I live in a place where I have all these memories and connections, while at the same time, those memories and connections are off, have often been literally paved over. And what's been put there is the geography of nowhere, you know, so, so that this place looks like every other place. And so I guess you you're also picking up on that that tension that I feel in my life is also something that has been made, made sense of for me by the Gospels, where there is both a sense of kind of uh, loss, but also this deep sense of hope that comes from loving community that comes from the gifts of God's creation.
0: Well, and one of the things that you talk about so poignantly in your book, The Green Good News, is you, you mention, and I'm going to paraphrase here, you say that basically you're the child of growing up in beautiful farming country, but your access to food was processed food. And that oftentimes you hated the idea of farming. You didn't understand basically why the problem of mosquitoes hadn't been solved yet at one point you say in the book. And you what you wanted most was to just have this ready-made, packaged sort of access to nutrition and and I'm hearing that also in your response about the sense of place is that this beautiful place with green country has been reprocessed and packaged into strip malls and subdivisions and this is really getting at the heart of the problem that we're talking about it's hard to have a sense of place a connection to the land a connection to the food cycle anymore because everything that we get in, from from our geography to our nutrition has been processed for us hasn't it
1: yeah that's right and and there is a deep resonance between prefabricated and wrapped in silophane kind of products that we get at a store and, and even kind of the the kind of homes that we live in and the neighborhoods that we live in, you know, where things are kind of, and the, the problem is not just the kind of aesthetic problem of, you know, monotonous uniformity, but that, that monotonous uniformity I think is, is driven by a kind of insidious set of anxieties about, difference and also about, you know, desires for accumulation and production from from certain powers. So there is a a strong sense in which our lives have been processed and in in a kind of, you know, manufactured, unhealthy sense. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of processes that could shape our lives that would be wonderful, but a lot of the dominant processes that seem to be shaping our cares and our hearts and our relationships and even our bodies are just deeply
0: unhealthy well and so when we're thinking about restoring health one of the avenues that you're advocating for in this book the green good news is you're advocating a refreshed return to an understanding of Jesus Christ and Jesus's message. And we're going to dig into that in the fullness of our conversation today. But since we're still staying with kind of your personal upbringing, let's talk a little bit about how Christ was introduced to you when you were a child. Who was the Christ that you grew to know in your church experience And we'll get to how that Christ has become problematized for you, but what was the initial kind of message that you got about what the good news was when you were a child?
1: Yeah, so while I I grew up in Kentucky, my upbringing is in kind of liberal Protestant traditions. And so the Jesus that I encountered as a kid was a Jesus that was sometimes, I think, thought of as a teacher um, and a teacher of love, and inclusion, and peace. And so I think that there's, there's a lot of elements there where you know, a lot of things that come up in the book, uh, there are some, some positive things that go bone deep about seeing Jesus as really an advocate for this vision of wholeness, joy. But the underside of, I think, that the Jesus that I was maybe raised with was that Jesus was kind of a nice guy, in, in the South, uh, I think especially in the South but really everywhere else, I, I think niceness is actually a, a problem. you know I, I think kindness is good, meekness is good you know those are all kind of theological terms that we can talk about later. but niceness is really just about kind of uh, maintaining the status quo, right not shaking things up and it, or, or you know it's there's, there's a reason why in the South the the place where kind of white supremacy and slavery and racism, were most obvious and most violently expressed. There's a reason why etiquette is so powerful, right? Because you want to cover over the, the, just the grime and the cruelty of the status quo. And so niceness covers over the grime and the cruelty of the status quo. And, and I think that the nice Jesus, in a lot of ways, ended up being somebody who was a prophet of inclusion. But inclusion into what? And I think the communities I was a part of, I think they wanted Jesus to be this kind of inclusive figure that brought people into things as they were. And so then the problem was that people, it was just that people got excluded from things as they were, not that there are deep systemic
0: problems that need deep systemic solutions. And we'll pick up on that idea in the next segment, but for now we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with T. Wilson Dickinson. He's a writer, pastor, and organizer in Georgetown, Kentucky. He teaches at Lexington Theological Seminary, and we're talking about his recent book, The Green Good News, Christ's Path to Sustainable and Joyful Life. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is T. Wilson Dickinson. He's a writer, pastor, and organizer who teaches at Lexington Theological Seminary in Kentucky. We're talking about his recent book, The Green Good News. Well, before the break we were talking about how the vision of Jesus that you grew up with was pushing in a direction of love, inclusion, and peace, with Jesus being a possible advocate figure for those that are least wanted in society. But you were also talking about ways in which that vision of Jesus was stopped short by a sort of cultural understanding. And in particular, you were you were thinking about how in the South, niceness is used to protect the status quo. And I think that's a great place to bring in a portion from your book, The Green Good News, that I've asked you to read. And it's a section where early on in the book, you're starting to talk about Jesus at the crossroads of the imperial and the covenantal. And I'd like you to read that passage, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you, David. So like the current ecological crisis... The cross of Christ marks the site of both catastrophe and new hope. For the Romans, it was an instrument of execution that announced the defeat of their opponents. But for Christ, the cross displayed the alternative path of self-giving love. The cross marks the conflict between two ways of living in the world, one that seeks to extract wealth from the land and exploit the people, and another that seeks to live on the land and with one's fellow's creatures equitably and sustainably. Though a familiarity with the cross as a golden symbol has smoothed its rough edges, it's important to remember that crucifixion was one of the most powerful acts of torture and propaganda that the empire used. This public form of execution was the punishment reserved for slaves and political insurrectionists, people who dared to upset the hierarchy of the status quo The cross was a billboard upon which the empire displayed its power. For the disciples who saw their teacher brutalized and murdered in public, this was supposed to communicate that resistance was futile. As an act of protest and nonviolent resistance, Jesus' death instead unveiled the desperate violence of the empire. While the good news of the empire proclaimed that their systems of justice brought peace, Christ's peaceful and dignified demeanor in their trials, showed its violence and cruelty. Therefore, the cross did mark a crisis, but it was the crisis of an entire way of life that needed to be repented of and transformed. The path beyond this imperial catastrophe, which has forsaken the land and twisted the people, was illuminated by the power of self-giving love. As Christ would say at his last meal with his followers, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. The cross marks the dual movement of both resisting the injustice of the empire and living a life entirely dedicated to love, regardless
0: of the cost. And that's our guest, Wilson Dickinson, reading from his recent book, The Green Good News, Christ's Path to Sustainable and Joyful Life. So you use a term in there that I want to take a moment and really dig into, this notion of empire are we talking about something that is in history the monolith of Rome or when we use this word empire are we talking about something that stretches even into the present day and if it stretches into the present day how does it do that
1: yeah that's that's a great question and you know, it, it, a good deal of uh revision went into thinking about is empire capitalized or not capitalized in that context <laughs> right so so sometimes, uh, you know, in, in the book I'm talking about the empire, which is Rome, which is the backdrop of the world that Jesus lived in. And there's been kind of an enormous literature that's emerged in seeing the significance of empire in the Bible. And, and, it's, and it's throughout the Bible there's always an empire, you know, kind of standing in the background. And, and being able to see that backdrop really brings out the social, political, economic, and cultural kind of stakes in the Scriptures. But as the Scriptures show us, and as the Scriptures are constantly performing, they're constantly seeing the ways that Egypt, and what was learned by the ancestors and the prophets from the situation or the figure of Egypt, or from the situation or figure of Babylon, they see these connections between the, the oppression And the destruction and the pain that they're experiencing in their lives and so a lot of what what Jesus is drawing upon is this Hebrew tradition of unveiling what's wrong with the Empire because the Empire always likes to dress itself up as you know the source of goodness and virtue and so there's this long Hebrew tradition of unveiling that as it's not goodness and virtue it's actually this is the cause of our problems and so Jesus and, and living in the Roman Empire is, is seeing that same dynamic at stake. So, and, and Christians and and Jews throughout the centuries have been making similar moves to to see the the wisdom and prophecy and teachings um, and revelation of the scriptures and of their traditions to to come to understand and to view beyond the kind of sheen of the cultural fabric that wants to say. The empire is actually what you know. The empire, are the job creators, that actually are the ones that provide everything. And uh, you know, the message of the scriptures is that you know, that's actually that's idolatry and it's injustice. And actually, it's God that provides a good creation. And so, so the empire in our day is something that is pushed in certain ways by nation states that look maybe a little like little like Rome as we might think of it with a strong military, and with egotistical leaders that do crazy things. But also the empire, and and there's another vast literature about this, the empire in our day is also deeply rooted in economic forces and structures that shape our lives, that literally shape the land and spaces we live in, and that try to tell us over and over again that they are the source of goodness and creation, that they're the ones that feed us that they're the ones that put clothes on our backs rather than seeing the ways in which you know, God's good creation gives a bounty that should be enough for everyone, that you know, the food that we have comes from the land and it comes from laborers, and you know, the clothes that we have comes from, again, the goodness of creation and, and creatures. And so I, I, so one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is, and I did sweat a little bit about you know making too strong of an analogy, but is to see a kind of a, a resonance, between these different historical structures and the time that we're living in now. And and to see that resonance helps us see the violence and cruelty of it, but it also helps us see the way in which the responses of the past can help us see a way forward
0: today. Well, there's a couple more things I want to dig into with this. The, this phrase that you use, the cross was a billboard upon which the empire displayed its power. And so when we're talking about empire whether we're talking about ancient Rome or the present day there's a narrative that the empire is trying to get us to buy into and you've begun to sort of talk about it in the sense of we're the one that feeds you we're the job creators we're we're the source of all goodness we're the source of safety and so part of that is connected to violence isn't it and how is it connected to violence
1: Yeah well and, and yeah so, so sometimes the violence is manifest in ways like the cross where it's put on display. And so it's it's a warning to all those who would would dare to resist. And and then I guess other times also that's part of the, the rhetoric and the actual violence of police brutality and mass incarceration in our own country is it's that too is, is a billboard that's a warning to certain people, but it's also a warning to make us think that we're actually uh, in danger from each other, that our communities are in fact not safe, that there are these others who will invade and destroy our lives. And so there's, you know, I guess there's there's two sides to the explicit violence, where one is trying to keep down the marginalized explicitly, but then there's this other side to the violence of warning, and so in the, in the empire this is warning that the barbarians are coming and we keep you safe. But then there's also baked into these logics of empire, which which are largely, I think, about logics of extraction, right, to where the engine that keeps the empire going is extracting wealth from the land and from labor, and taking that wealth and, you know, kind of piling it in centers and piling it in the hands of elites. And so even in that kind of everyday activity, I think that there is uh, a violence it's at work, but it's a, it's a slow violence, right? So there's a spectacular violence that's put on display with the cross, but then there's a slow violence that happens out in the fields, that happens in the marketplace, that happens in poor neighborhoods. And that is, I think, baked into the very logic of empire to, to allow for there to be a pyramid where somebody's at top, there's going to be a legion of slaves you know, who, who are at the bottom. And that's just how the empire works.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with T. Wilson Dickinson about his recent book, The Green Good News, Christ's Path to Sustainable and Joyful Life just now you were talking about the kind of overt billboard nature of empire, how it displays certain types of social relationships and certain types of violence to help to keep its power in place. But you also point out in your book, The Green Good News, that there's a lot of hiddenness. And when I was reading this passage, I thought about a story that's told about Carl Rahner when he talks about a banana and you go and you buy a cheap banana (laughs) at a grocery store and you don't see the fact that the banana has costs built into it to get it to the grocery store, but also exploitive labor practices and all these other sorts of things that go on at the origin point of that banana. And when I was thinking about this, you were talking not about a banana, but about a cup of coffee. So take us back to that cup of coffee and help us understand how that cup of coffee can open up for us some of the things that empire hides in terms of these power relationships.
1: Right. So yeah. So w- one of the I guess examples, and and we could take. I mean, the the sad reality is we could take just so many things of our lives and then just unfold this. But so one of the examples I was thinking about where uh, I was at a meeting of the World Council of Churches, and you know, before I left, uh, the, my roommate at this event was a pastor from Burundi. I bought some, like a bag, a couple bags of coffee off of him, and I actually I don't drink coffee myself. I got it for for my wife. But so I got those bags of coffee, took them home, and then I thought about how different that exchange was from the normal one where I just go down to the corner store and buy a cup of coffee. Because apparently there's, you know, there's been studies done about just how many times the coffee that, you know, so, so the amount of money that's paid to a grower is infinitesimal relative to the money that ultimately is charged at the, you know, end of, of, of a kind of the coffee's journey to you know, the United States there's all these markups that happen there's all, and, and money is funneled into the hands of corporations it doesn't go into the hands of the local grower even with all those markups coffee is still remarkably cheap on my side but whereas it's cheap on my side there's all kinds of costs that are rooted in the country of Burundi and so that the whole time I had been at the World Council meeting It was remarkable to hear about the ministries he was involved with, but also just to hear about the the deep kind of systemic suffering. He he did a lot of work with children and with families, and that pain and suffering that that those children faced was because of kind of colonial and imperial dynamics in Burundi, where that wealth is being extracted, right? We're, we're, we're taking the coffee out. So it's one, it's one of the few cash crops in Burundi is coffee. And that's being sent to us for cheap. And they actually, in Burundi, the, there isn't enough farmland to feed everyone in Burundi. And so for the elites in our country and in that country to make money, they grow coffee, don't get much money for it. And they also grow it in ways that ends up Damaging the land, and so there there isn't enough land to even just feed the people of Burundi. You know, much less enjoy all kinds of cheap trinkets.
0: Well, and this picks up on kind of a theme that runs throughout your book, The Green Good News, and that is this idea that God's commonwealth, the the abundance that we have been given in creation, is routinely diverted. To fund the lavish lifestyles of the very few, to to fund the lavish extravagance of empire. And let's talk a little bit about that in light of kind of the example that you gave from Burundi and more generally. You know, what is wrong with taking the abundance of the land and making sure that a few people benefit beautifully from that? I mean, isn't that what capitalism is all about? Isn't that what we're all hoping for that we get to be part of that 1% to sit on top? Isn't that the dream?
1: Well, and, yeah, that's that's the that to me is is one of the most unfortunate parts of you know the the culture that I live in, and something that even that even shapes my heart, right? That this idea that that the goal is to be on top, to be the winner, to have more than others, and that that's a beautiful thing, right? And I think that stands directly in tension with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is which is not about kind of earning something that makes you better than others, but it's about be just lavish, unmerited grace given by God. I can also think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is about the renewal of of God's commonwealth, of God's kingdom, where everyone has enough. And one of the things that was really life-giving and important for me, and that's really been kind of changing my life, is to, is I think for a long time, I thought in my mind that the Christian ideal was a vision, not just of simplicity, but a vision of asceticism, right? A vision of of just giving everything away all the time. And that if we were really living the Christian life, then that life would be one with hair shirts and all kinds of self-loathing, you know. Or, but but actually, I think the, the vision of Jesus is a vision of a simple but beautiful, joyful life.
0: So when we think about this There are examples that we could find of a different way, because you talk about kind of going into asceticism as one possible Christian option. There are other examples that we can think of from Christian history. One example that comes to my mind would be the Quaker John Woolman, and he famously dressed in gray uh, in the in the colonial times because he refused to wear clothing that was dyed with colors that had come over on ships that also carried slaves. So that's a touchstone for me about a way to live differently in the world. I think a touchstone for you is pretty clearly Wendell Berry, and I'd like to ask you a little bit about the influence of Wendell Berry on your thinking.
1: Yeah, and yeah, uh, so that's one of the things I was thinking about with some of the beautiful traditions of Kentucky, you know, and, and as as the crow flies, Wendell Berry actually doesn't live that far from where I live. It is, even now, still kind of a, a world apart. But there, there's a lot in Berry that I find inspiring in a kind of a vision of a kind of simple living, but simple living that is grounded in community, that is about joy and beauty. And, and so... Again, so it's, it's not this vision of these kind of individual heroes that give everything away, but it's, it's a vision of people working together, and, and not just everyone having enough, but everyone kind of thriving, but thriving under the conditions of simplicity, not of complete excess. But there's also a sense in which Barry's Kentucky is not my Kentucky. You know, just because we grew up in different places and different times. And so I don't... There isn't like this... I don't have this deep feeling of a world lost. And I think that there... I I think sometimes Barry gets a a bad rap for having this kind of, like, romantic streak in him that I don't think is quite there. But there is, I think, there are some threads of Thomas Jefferson that are going on in Barry's work. And I think there are deep strands of Thomas Jefferson and the people that celebrate uh, Wendell Berry's work, where the ideal is the kind of small family farm, uh, small landholders where people live independently and through self-determination. And that's actually a thread that, because of my American upbringing, at some point really resonated with me. But the, the more I read the scriptures, the more I feel myself at odds with that kind of vision, where where it's not about independence, and it's not about self-determination. It's about beloved community and people finding a way to work together and to act collectively. But again, I think all that's there in Barry's work, but I think a lot of times in its popular reception, it goes in a kind of the direction of the romanticization of you know, the small, white, rural community.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with T. Wilson Dickinson. He teaches at Lexington Theological Seminary. He's a pastor, writer, and organizer. And today we're talking about his recent book, The Green Good News, Christ's Path to Sustainable and Joyful Life. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal Magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a long-time reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with T. Wilson Dickinson. He's a writer, pastor, and organizer, and he lives in Kentucky where he teaches at Lexington Theological Seminary. He's the author of Exercises in Creation from Paul to Kierkegaard, but today we're talking about his recent book, The Green Good News Christ's Path to Sustainable and Joyful Life. Well, before the break, we were talking about the ways in which There's this kind of narrative of individuality that runs through a certain type of Christian identity, and you were pushing back against that, and you were talking about both your experience buying coffee personally from a pastor from Burundi but also you were talking about the ways in which Wendell Berry sometimes gets misread as being a kind of prophet of of kind of rugged individuality in the Jeffersonian tradition. One of the things that was very clear to me in your book, The Green Good News, is that you are really calling for a restoration of community and relationships. And I'd like to explore that a little bit. When you're talking about what Christ does for community and relationships, how how is that radical? How is that new? And what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I think that that's actually one of the biggest obstacles we have, in, at least in this country or at least in the communities that I'm a part of, is the, the veneration of individualism that really has us look past the ways in which community and collective power can be created. And I think that there's part of that is that there's this fear that, there, that community has to be driven by conformity right? That we have to hold up the individual to protect them from something. Whereas I guess what I'm seeing more and more in the scriptures, and I guess this is, like you said, uh, the vision and traditions of Christianity I was steeped in weren't so much about the ways in which individual souls need to be saved for heaven, though that is such a powerful part of what Christianity means in America, that has still deeply shaped me. But they, they were, there was still a deep sense that what was most centrally at stake in religion was the beliefs of individuals and the liberties of individuals. I think that the biblical vision, I really don't... I think that, for the most part, individuality... Not individuality, independence. Is seen as a sin, and and not a sin because people are different, but a sin because independence is to hold that up as a goal is to actually diminish our relationships. To actually, it's a barrier for us to see ourselves as creatures that are a part and woven into a creation. Right, And as creatures in creation, I think that that metaphor helps us see that in creation, there's there's a proliferation of difference difference is what actually makes an ecosystem work so i think that that's also in that relational space and in that space of kind of creatures working together it seems to me that's where jesus worked and that's where he his interventions take place and these practices of building community and changing relationships and through those kind of social communal transformations to build collective power that can then even make greater change.
0: Well, I'm going to pick that up now and ask you about some concrete practices that we can be employing as people of faith to begin to enact the kind of reinvigorated relationships that you're talking about. And your book, The Green Good News, breaks out into two parts. The first part, you are talking about kind of a this new way of or this this renewed way of looking at Jesus. But then you move in part two into specific practices. And I'm going to paraphrase those practices, but I'm going to call them teaching new stories, healing of physical and spiritual bodies, and then the hospitality of sharing communion at table together. And I'd like to dig into each of these. And so one of the things that you advocate for is kind of going back into the parables. What can the parables teach us about Practices that can help to shape new relationships.
1: So, a biblical scholar, Wim Perzog, has has a really good line that he says that we've been we've been taught that the parables are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. But it turns out that probably a better way of reading the parables is that they are earthy stories with a heavy meaning. Which is to say that the parables are actually like little political cartoons that Jesus is telling that show. They, they, they usually tell a funny story in which things are a little exaggerated, but through those exaggerations and the strangeness of the story, the order of empire is unveiled. Right? And so, and so that's one of the functions that the parables can do for us is they can kind of do this work that we've been talking about so much in this in our in our conversation about beginning to see that the empire that the that the boss is actually not the agent of goodness, but someone who is themselves. A cog in a machine, and a machine that's maybe not helping us, or that's that's certainly not helping us. So the parables reverse dimensional wisdom, and they unveil the empire for what it is. And so I think that but the, and they they do that by showing everyday scenarios and putting a twist on them. And so I think that we would be well served by looking at the parables in the way that they both have this kind of these earthy stories with a heavy meaning, that delves deep into the dirt of everyday life and begin to help us think about what's really going on there. Because I think that the kind of the, our, our heavily uh, mediatized world where we are, our attention is drawn to spectacular often turns our attention away from the everyday. And I think there's a tremendous amount of power that's hiding right there in the everyday. So the parables can help, again, unveil some of the problems, but also the parables show us a pedagogy. That is sometimes also joyful and also sometimes shows positive examples of how small things in every day, right? Like, so a mustard seed, like a woman kneading bread, like these, these can be acts of the kingdom that actually build up relationships and that nourish bodies and that help to begin to build the Holy Spirit that can transform our lives.
0: So am I hearing you correctly that these kind of actions are there every day because we're already kind of engaging in these processes of kneading bread and sowing mustard seeds and plowing fields and doing the things that help to keep society going. But the story that we attach to those actions can be altered because right now the story is this serves the empire and this is for the leaders. But if we change the story, then this can this same action can become this builds community this builds the kingdom. First of all, am I understanding that mechanism correctly, or would you say it in a different way?
1: That's a great way to say it, and you know, and by changing some of those stories and by changing some of those practices, I think it would also begin to you know, transform those relationships. So it's so it's, so then it's, it's not just a shift in attitude, but to those shifts in stories can really have material differences. Like I, I was actually in my in my kind of prayers today, I was you know, really thinking about how, how stuck I get in my to-do list <laughs> and how much that orients my life, right? And the and, and to-do list is about productivity and efficiency, which are at the heart of uh, the guiding lights of our contemporary empire. And not that productivity and efficiency are wrong, but that they are the kind of the central values that guide a lot of my work. And so I was just thinking... You know, what if on my to-do list I put all this other stuff, because I have all kinds of, you know, things that I've written down about, I value this, I value family, I value study, I value care and attention to people around me, I value justice. What, what if I started writing in my to-do list that, you know, those kinds of things, I made myself check those off, right? And, and so I think that would be like a, a practical way of inserting those stories into that kind of everyday space.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with T. Wilson Dickinson. He's a writer, pastor, and organizer who teaches at Lexington Theological Seminary in Kentucky. We're talking about his recent book, The Green Good News, Christ's Path to Sustainable and Joyful Life. So we've been talking a little bit about telling new stories, but you also give two other kind of practical steps, and one of them is this idea of healing, and healing both the spiritual and the physical body. Help me understand what that healing looks like? does it just look like going to a better doctor or are we talking about something different than simply the medical healing that we oftentimes think about in regard to this question?
1: Yes yeah, so, so to, I guess get to the, the stories of, of Jesus healing which you know which, which I think gives us uh, our point of access into this and which really shapes all this. Um, it's really helpful for me to see in, in this kind of in, in the scholar literature, there are some folks who want to say, well, instead of thinking about what Jesus is healing as sicknesses, right, so bodily ailments that are driven by some kind of pathogen, we should really think about what Jesus is healing as illnesses. And so an illness is, in medical anthropology, something that is kind of broader, something that's more social, right? So trauma could be something that is an illness. Right? Trauma is not a pathogen, but it's, it's something that does most certainly affect the body in very physical ways, but it's also linked into all kinds of social causes, and then it has all kinds of more obvious social ramifications, like really any sickness does, too. But so what Jesus does is he comes into situations where people are damaged, oftentimes by social structures, and damaged in social ways, and his words of healing are not kind of an intervention in the natural order to do something that's supernatural but it's actually the restoration of God's created order for things to be as they should when they've been damaged by broken systems and so, and so for example you know when Jesus heals a leper it turns out that you know what leprosy probably refers to in the scriptures is some kind of skin condition right That is not necessarily what's called hansen's disease where people Die that's horrific, um, but it's, it may be something more like what we would call psoriasis, or just a whole variety of things. And so, being called a leper in that ancient context meant that you were kind of ostracized from the community. And so, when Jesus heals the leper, part of what he does is he changes the name that is put on that person. Instead of being a leper, they are now invited back into the community. And so, by healing them, he is he's healing a social injury with a social response. And part of that social response is to give someone and a new name, right? They're not leper that's ostracized, they're a child of Christ, invited into this new household and this new kind of community. And so similarly I think in our age of individualism where we we all think that we are kind of little entrepreneurs that should be kind of champions for ourselves or climbing up the ladder of success, it can be healing for us to get a new name, right? To to think of ourselves differently, to think of ourselves not primarily through that lens of our job, but to think of ourselves as children of Christ, to think of ourselves as members of the, the blooming kingdom of God. And so, and so through names and through different forms of relationship, I think we can really begin to heal, or I guess the message of Jesus is that we can begin to heal those kind of social ills.
0: I think that maybe some listeners might be suspicious of what you're doing because they might say, well, you've just taken the miracle out of what Jesus does. Jesus miraculously heals a physical illness, but you've just made this about social relationships. But if what I'm hearing you say is correct, this is nothing short of miraculous in and of itself because Jesus's ability to transform those social relationships can be just as powerful and just as unimaginable, can't it?
1: That's right, and uh, I saw uh, a, a meme going around recently that no one talks about the most crazy miracle of Jesus, that he was in his 30s and he had 12 close friends, and I think that you know, I think that's a silly thing to say, but I think it's also, there's a, a deep damage that comes from our relationships, and there's also a deep healing that comes from that. But also, I, I wouldn't want to take away, I think that there is supposed to be something mysterious. And excessive about those healing stories that I don't want to entirely make into something social
0: and I don't
1: want to I don't want to tame them but also I don't want to tame them by saying that they're magic either if that makes sense
0: it does and as you're thinking about these concrete practices, you enact some of these concrete practices on the ground there in Kentucky. The Green Good News is not just a book, it's also an organization. And I wonder if you'd take a moment and just tell us about the work that that organization does.
1: Yeah, so Green Good News is, as an organization is kind of an umbrella for a number of different initiatives that are rooted in central Kentucky, and then also some work that's done with institutions, churches, schools. So, in the town I live in, one of the initiatives connected to it is a community garden that's a few blocks from my house. And it's actually it's a, so this is an effort that is a joint initiative between two churches, Georgetown Baptist First Christian Church, and the local college, Georgetown College. And the land is actually the college's, and it used to be a college community garden, but it's it's now become something that's been handed over to the community, and so. In the community garden, you know, we, we grow some food, and that food goes to neighbors, it goes to people that are growing the food, it goes to a local food bank, and we there is some kind of material difference that comes out of that. But the the idea of, of community gardens, and especially this one, is that it's really a learning garden, because a lot of that kind of intergenerational wisdom of how to grow food, of how to work with the land has been lost, and so it's a kind of experimental space to get our hands dirty and to try and Relearn how to do that, but it's also a space in which we're trying to relearn how to do community, and we're trying to begin to understand what a, kind of a rhythm of life that lives in with care and attention to creation looks like. Right? So it's so it's so the garden is it does grow some food, um, but for the most part, I think it's it's an experimental space that helps us think about how things could be otherwise. Right, so it's a little laboratory. And another initiative that kind of is connected to the Green Good News um, is a, a dinner church that meets at our house. And so a couple times a month, an intentional community gathers in our house, and we all at the same time have dinner, have a worship service, have a Bible study, have a prayer service, you know, kind of it's it's all blended in together. And initially, I was thinking of, of that dinner church as a new church start. It's kind of Morphing into something that looks more like a what, what might become like kind of a multi-household intentional community, and so those are kind of like small little mustard seeds, little relational spaces where relationships are being built, our hearts are being transformed, and hopefully, concrete local stuff comes out of that. There's also work through the Green Good News working with kind of other institutions. I mean, w- one of the things I've been focusing on the last couple years is trying to do
0: you know, my own little
1: part in trying to help build networks in some emerging movements, so in, like, the Christian food and faith movement, trying to build connections between people who maybe feel isolated doing this kind of crazy new out-there work in their context, try and build connections between them so that they can feel like they're not alone and be reminded of the big vision, how this is a movement, how they don't have to be doing this all by themselves, but we're actually you know, all doing our piece, and it can work in, in concert.
0: Well, we started our conversation talking about the kind of huge anxieties that face us both in our day-to-day lives, but also in the darkness when we're up at night. I'm curious, as we're talking about practices, what is something right now that you are doing that is keeping you hopeful?
1: Well, there's a few things. One is I have a four-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old, and though there's a lot of dark nights where Thinking about the future is so much more terrifying because of him. You know, there, There's a lot of joyful days where just simply being with a child helps you see the newness of things and helps you see the, the way that you know, the future really isn't written. And I guess some other things that are giving me, me hope are, again, being connected in with, with a number of movements. There's, there's certain things that have not been allowed to have been said
0: in American
1: public life and really even private life for a long time, which now we can talk about. Right? So, so just for one example, is there are people out there who talk about socialism, and it's something that connects with working class people, and it's something that connects with young people, and it's not something that is seen as a boogeyman, and it's a different vision of socialism to what I think we saw in the twentieth century. That gives me hope. I'm not even sure. What that's going to look like, or where that's going to go, but that gives me hope, and it also gives me hope that you know that there are—I guess—in Chicago this happened, in Kentucky it happened. You know, the, the teachers have begun to connect and find a voice and find power, and so there's, there are these movements. I think that are starting to coalesce. The, the future is definitely unwritten around them, and it's not clear what will come of that. But I guess that's that's also the space of hope, where it's, it's not optimism, it's, it's the hope in, uh, in things not seen.
0: Well, Wilson Dickinson, I have to say that this has been kind of a season of despair for me, and I found your book, The Green Good News, to be a beacon for me. And reading it was a joy. It's incredibly clearly laid out and your, your attention to the Scripture and to the careful reading of the of the Gospels is evident on every page. It's evident that you are trying to think of ways to apply your faith to the big problems that we're facing today. And I just want to encourage my listeners to pick up a copy of the book, because for me, it was a real touchstone of hope in a time of despair. Thank you for writing the book, but also thank you for taking the time today to talk about it with me and with my listeners.
1: Well, that's thank you david that that means so much and it's it's been a joy to talk with you and also i want to say it's it's a joy to to listen to your radio show. I'm really grateful for your ministry and i guess this this didn't come up in our conversation but we we've known each other for a long time and and you were a doctoral student when I started off in divinity school and I've always appreciated not just your friendship but also your wisdom and you and you there are things that you said back then about writing and theology that have been with me ever since. And so I'm I'm really grateful for your friendship and your insight then, but also for your witness today.
0: Well, thank you for those kind words, and thank you again for being with us. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keejit. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio.